Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and this week I'm joined by Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And via Skype from New York, we have Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. Coming up on the show, the end of internet freedom, the left versus Brexit and cultural appropriation. The government sees the internet as a place of peril and says it's high time for it to be policed. Abuse, radicalisation and any and all sorts of harm is abundant. I'm giving tech companies a message that they cannot ignore. I warned you and you did not do enough. The era of social media firms regulating themselves is over. The UK government has proposed some of the most wide-ranging and draconian measures for regulating the internet in the free world. The Online Harms White Paper will establish a regulator that can fine websites and tech platforms if they fail to remove what the government calls harmful content. It will even have the power to block websites entirely. Brendan, what are your thoughts on this new development in internet censorship? I think it's really shocking and really scary and anyone who believes in internet freedom which spiked apples absolutely does should be really really concerned about it the, the the shocking thing for me this week has been the way in which ministers have been boasting about their proposed new regime so they're not even embarrassed about being pro-censorship so they're going around saying this will be the toughest regime in the world and um, this is the end of the era of self-regulation for the internet saying all these things as if that's something to be proud of, as if it's something to be proud of to be so determined to control what people can say online. And I think that in itself was a real testament to the low esteem in which freedom of speech is held these days, that uh, politicians can be so brazen about undermining it. I think one of the most worrying things in the online harms white paper is the conflation of so many different things. So on the one side, you have things which are already illegal, so social media firms and other internet companies that refuse to deal with violent terrorist videos or child sexual abuse could be punished. Those things are already illegal. You're already not allowed to disseminate uh, material showing child sexual abuse. But then that is conflated with these entirely subjective, vague categories, including fake news, um, harassment, uh, trolling, all these things which are completely and utterly open to interpretation. So the collapsing together of so many different things, right from actual adult violence against children through to the expression of an opinion or the um, even the coverage of a news story in a way that people might disagree with. I think that really opens the door to a pretty wide-ranging form of censorship which will make internet companies err on the side of caution and ban things just in case the government slaps them on the wrist. Ella? Yeah, I think one of the really interesting, well, do you call it interesting? <laughs> one <laughs> of the things about the definitions in, in the white paper is this fact of a sort of almost a celebration of the limitlessness of the proposed um, censorships in terms of they talk about unclear definition, the need to tackle harmful content that is as of yet unclearly defined. So essentially yeah. what they're saying is 
we're not going to stop anytime soon. There is nothing that's out of our reach. Even things that we might be able to have a disagreement about whether or not it is harmful, we will still be able to regulate that. So the scope for where this will reach is sort of endless. And I was thinking about ways in which we've already felt the sting of censorship. And as Brendan says, it's becoming increasingly difficult to voice a strong political viewpoint online because basically you're afraid that your your post is going to get taken down you know if you use uh, you know smatter it with a few swear words or if you even talk in use words that are sort of just with a strong emphasis yeah. in one way or another certainly with contentious political debates but there's other crazy things like every time I write about the older generation on Spiked, uh, we t- used to tend to use a, a picture for our articles, which was a nice picture of an old man's hands. Twitter always bans that as sensitive content. It's bizarre. <laughs> and it's because they think I'm sharing an image of nudity. On the algorithm's basis of how this is regulated, it's bizarre. But also the idea that governments, regulators who are supposed to be independent, would be making these decisions for us of what is and isn't harmful content. That is very worrying. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting that... Why, I don't know why the government thinks that social media aren't doing anything to ban stuff. We, you know, anyone who's listened to this podcast will know that people are banned and posts are deleted for all kinds of things, whether it's, you know, people on the far right, like Tommy Robinson or, or conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones, but also feminists have been banned from social media for expressing their views, like Megan Murphy. You know, people are banned for misgendering trans people. So the idea that... The internet is this sort of wild west in need of taming is is already a, a complete myth. And I think the thing that annoys me most is that the government is able to um, present itself as this um, crusader against the big bad tech companies, when in reality, you know, what they're really opposed to, what they really want to regulate is our speech, because... After all, it isn't Facebook, it isn't Google, it isn't YouTube that produces all the content that they find objectionable. It's us, it's the users, it's the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, absolute, that's absolutely right. And I think uh, th- this idea that it's a clash between the government that cares for us and social media companies that don't is completely phony. Um, everyone's playing it up as some great divide, when in fact... They're in it together. Social media companies, as you say, have already been censoring content and in a political manner, too. Um, and the government is now just pushing at an open door and demanding that they do more of it or face the consequences. So they're in it together, both sides, both the kind of corporate suits of Silicon Valley and the technocratic balls who run British politics agree that the internet is an is an it needs to be governed more closely and in some cases censored i think one thing it's worth bearing in mind in relation to the social media companies is the way in which twitter mobs really kind of laid the ground for this one of the things we've been concerned about is that the more you call on these kind of unelected, unaccountable capitalist elites in Silicon Valley to determine what is acceptable to say online, the more you will just create a, a very censored, closed-off space in which all sorts of opinions will be potentially outlawed. And we're now seeing that happening. We're now seeing the formalization of the Twitter mob mentality. Um, and that really shows what a grave error it is to call on powerful uh, institutions or governmental institutions to um, censor people's views. You really just create this kind of 
dynamic. And the potential for political censorship as a consequence of the government's uh, actions is really, really strong. So many MPs these days complain about being harassed online, mm. particularly in relation to Brexit. They think anyone who calls them a traitor or anyone who calls them a backstabber is basically a Nazi who needs to be banned. This kind of proposed regime would, it make, would make it so much easier for these kind of fragile, self-obsessed MPs like Jess Phillips or Anna Subri or whoever else it might be, would make it so much easier for them to demonise certain people as harassers and to have them potentially expelled from the internet. So it could lead directly to a form of censorship that can that protects powerful political people from the plebs, and that would be a real problem. Uh, I think it's completely elitist. I mean, I like barefaced so because what it's saying is that ordinary people do not get to decide uh, what they do and don't believe in, what they do and don't want to share, what they can and can't think. I mean, mm. it, it's about saying that there are. We use the phrase a lot on Spike gatekeepers of truth and those will be if this white paper is a success which seems like it's going to be those will be people like Sajid Javid who as Brendan says have been puffing up their chests and boasting about this I mean you quoted in your article this week Fraser him saying you know addressing big tech companies I warned you and you did not do enough so it's no longer a matter of choice you mm. know posing as the hero when really what he's saying and what uh, MPs are in favour of this are saying is we will decide what is truth and what is wrong. We will decide what's harmful and what's good for you. And what that means is our voices as uh, members of the public gets drowned out and gets censored. And it doesn't take a genius to make links between this and what's happening with the Brexit discussion. Mm which is that the main force in politics at the moment is one that says keep people down, keep uh, the dangerous forces of democracy down, whether that be in denying the Brexit vote or pushing for internet censorship. It almost starts sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but it's true <laughs> these things are linked because it comes from the same distrust of the public. And essentially what this is is censorship to keep us down and keep us quiet. It's an elitist project. I'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to Spiked. I know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations, and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spiked has some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So, if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. Paul Embry, a trade unionist and Leave supporter, who's even appeared on this podcast, has been ordered by his union to stop using social media. A Twitter storm erupted when he described the middle classes as rootless and cosmopolitan. His critics on the woke left say he was deploying an anti-Semitic trope. He was also censured by his union for speaking in favour of Brexit at the March to Leave rally. Other trade unionists like Eddie Dempsey of the RMT have also been attacked by the liberal left for speaking publicly in favour of Brexit. Brendan, what's going on here in this, in this fight? Well, it seems pretty clear to me what's going on here, which is that the kind of bourgeois, woke, academically inclined left 
is launching an all-out attack on the working class left. That's really mm. what's happening. Um, Paul Embry and Eddie Dempsey are both working class. They both represent, uh, in different ways, working class people. Um, and they have views which the new woke left, the Corbynistas and others, find unpalatable. For example, they're both pro-Brexit, they believe in democracy, they think ordinary people should have a say in politics, they're sceptical of mass immigration, particularly the consequences as they see it, that it has on wages and, and job opportunities and so on and so forth. And so they are written off as fascists and Nazis and all this ridiculous, hysterical stuff that is being said about them. I think the idea that uh, Paul Embry was being anti-Semitic when he said the middle classes are increasingly rootless and cosmopolitan is utterly, utterly perverse. A completely made-up um, accusation has no substance in reality whatsoever and is such an obvious attempt to deflect attention from um, sections of the Corbynista movement which have real anti-Semitism, who really do insult Jewish people, who really do say things which could be construed or, or you know, interpreted as anti-Semitic. So it's an attempt to deflect from their own problem of anti-Jewish hatred, and it's an attempt to demonise um, a, a trade unionist who supports Brexit. I think it all points to the fact that if there's any class war happening in Britain today, it's happening not between Labour and the Tories, but within the Labour Party. That's where the most interesting class war is taking place. And it's a class war between the kind of entitled um, city-based bourgeois new left and the old working class left or the old Labour left, who this new left looks upon with utter contempt. That's where the, um, the, the real class war is taking place. So I think it's important to support people like Embry and Dempsey and allow them to express their views as they please. Ella? Yeah, um, definitely in complete solidarity with Paul Embry. I think this is a real indictment on the left and the state of solidarity within the left that this ridiculous storm over what he said has kicked off and fair play to him I mean when he was asked for comment he said if people are offended it can only mean that they were looking to be offended I think <laughs> usually when we cover these kind of stories people back out bow down on and apologize and rightly Paul is um, sticking to his guns in defending what he said I mean what he actually said is really not that uncontroversial at all and you can hear many academics politicians making the same argument that says that there is a, you know it's the somewheres and the anywheres yeah. argument that there are differences between um urban uh, metropolitan populaces who fly around the world and have privilege and all those things and then the the somewheres who are people who are stuck in places like slough or even tottenham who don't get to go anywhere i mean that's sort of a given i mean most liberals in this country will now say, yes, yes, this is a problem, we have to deal with it. I mean, the difference was it was it was someone like Paul or someone like Eddie Dempsey talking about it and saying, actually, no, this isn't just a policy that you can breeze over or something, it's a lived reality for people. And, and he was sticking the knife in a bit and saying, you who say that you speak for the working class, whether it be moaning about the fact that Brexit will hurt us worst or um, talking about the fact that we don't understand issues around immigration, actually, this is something that we think and we believe in. So... It was, wasn't a case of actually what he said, it was who was saying it that was the problem. Mm. I think it also raises some... Um, I've felt this recently, that the... Uh, and we were talking about it in the last section, political language, certainly online, has now become such a difficult thing to navigate because 
Um, really, the left and the right do this, but it seems now that people's words can get taken out of context and weaponized against them. And I remember I was discussing Brexit with a a Labour MP um, and I talked about the fact that those who were going for a second referendum were engaging in Quisling-like behaviour. And I mean, he completely lost his call and said that I was calling for violence against him by using a word like Quisling. Remember the time that everyone lost their heads over the enemies of the people headline. It's what essentially is happening (laughs) is that the um, political class is building a barrier around them through which no criticism and no agitation can get through. They're saying that it is absolutely unacceptable for you to talk about us, tell the truth about us or criticise us. And that's a really big problem. And it, the other thing I think is that it, it really, in relation to the Paul Embry, ridiculous Paul Embry scandal, it really actually sets back the struggle against anti-Semitism. I mean, anti-Semitism is something Spike's been writing about for years and years. We take it incredibly seriously as a kind of virulent form of racism that is on the rise. Um, but when you have this kind of reaction, which is using the accusation of anti-Semitism really just to score a political point against a pro-Brexit trade unionist. Not only are you trying to demonise what that trade unionist is saying in a very underhand way, but you're also likely to make people even more suspicious of the anti-Semitism discussion because they'll see it being politicised and weaponised in this way, which it has been in relation to Paul Embry. So they're actually really causing problems there too. I also think there's a, just a strong, a very strong element of class snobbery in a lot of this. If you look at what the Labour MP Clive Lewis has been saying about Eddie Dempsey in particular, he's talking about his tone and the way in which he expressed himself about Tommy Robinson, for example. He said supporters of Tommy Robinson are right to hate the liberal left. And really, you know, let's not beat around the bush. Clive Lewis is talking about Eddie Dempsey's accent. He's talking about the way Eddie Dempsey speaks, the way he expresses himself. And there is this presumption among the kind of uh, the bourgeois, supposedly radical left, that anyone who sounds too working class probably has questionable views, might be a bit racist, might not be sufficiently politically correct. So there's a very strong element of class snobbery in the way in which these two trade unionists have been treated. I think actually, if we really look into it, the whole thing is a pretty searing indictment of momentum and the Corbynista movement and their utter detachment from working class people and working class views. That's really what's being exposed here, how cut off that section of the left is from ordinary people. Well, Clive Lewis um, describes his politics as intersectional, internationalist, and he also (laughs) calls it class-based, but perhaps only in the way that it's sneering at the working classes. Although it was interesting to see in um, Paul Mason's attack on Eddie Dempsey, where, um, you know, he's referring to those comments you just referred to about Tommy Robinson, Brendan. He basically, in order to say that Eddie Dempsey doesn't represent the working class, Paul Mason basically redefines working class people as graduates and junior doctors and all kinds of people that we would, you know, understand as middle class in order to basically rubbish what, what is absolutely the truth that Labour has lost touch with, you know, traditional working class people. Oh, I, Paul Mason has lost touch with all sense completely, as I can see it. But I mean, it's if some of our <laughs> listeners might be thinking, who are these people? Because I think it's important to remember that this is such a I mean, the left as it stands in Britain, whether it be the Labour left or those sort of on the fringes, is such a strange group at the moment mm. who are I mean they've always fought with each other 
But at the, it's so vicious at the moment. I mean, reading yeah. Clive Lewis, I mean, this is an elected Labour politician, reading his statement on the spat with Eddie Dempsey. He says, 400 years of racism isn't wiped out simply by reading Das Capital and a handful of pamphlets. I mean, the sneering nastiness of that, mm. the absolute disgust that he has for someone like Eddie Dempsey, who is, you know, an autodidact in politics, yeah. is basically saying, and this is what underlies their kind of view of, of all working class people, that we are not agents, that we are not people with our own um, brains and thoughts that might one day challenge them but we're simply a lump to be managed i mean that's what colors their react their their visceral reaction to brexit it what allows it's what allows them to label all brexit voters or anyone who wants to talk about immigration as racist it's the labor party has shown its colors in its um reaction to brexit and in the condemnation of people like paul Embry and eddie dempsey weaponizing anti-semitism things like they just get lower and lower and i think they will suffer for it Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far. And if you are, why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider? It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us. So we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right. Now back to the show. A Canadian awards show for Indigenous music has become embroiled in a row over cultural appropriation. Indigenous artist Sikwiz has been accused of culturally appropriating a style of throat singing from a different Indigenous group. Accusations of cultural appropriation used to only be levied at white people, but with ethnic minorities in the firing line too, is cultural appropriation starting to eat itself? Ella, would you like to tell us a bit more about this? So this artist, Connie Legrand, who is an Indigenous artist, was um, yeah put up for an award for Best Album. And she uses what some people have described as an Inuit style of throat singing, uh, which apparently has deep cultural significances. And uh, as the Inuit community point out, was previously uh, condemned by either colonialist governments or catholic priest who came along and said it was sort of sexual and perverted and the devil's Mm. music so anyway for them it's very culturally significant and apparently this singer connie legrand by using deep guttural sounds in her music is culturally appropriating it now she has gone to her elders at the big stone cree nation and said look do you think i'm doing something wrong and actually (laughs) Funnily enough, they put out quite an interesting statement, quite a good statement, where they said, uh, this is a gift, your singing is a gift from the creator and it is not something that can be owned by anyone. Now, I might Mm. not agree with the religious um, implications there, but I think the point is the idea that a sound, a sound, a deep guttural sound can be something that can be owned by a culture is fairly bizarre. And even the uh, those who are boycotting this award show now, some of the Inuit singers, are admitting that saying this feels odd, you know, us fighting fighting each other in ethnic minorities. But this is the low level that you get to when you start with the whole discussion about cultural appropriation, because in the end, it ends up with people fighting about things like sounds. And music especially is something which to survive has to be fluid. I mean, mm. it, it cannot be owned by a sound or a feeling or a genre cannot be owned by one group of people. 
I was thinking about other instances in which cultural appropriation has come up in music and, you know, it's we more recognise it as a discussion between, uh, you know, white people using black music. Yeah. And we're quite familiar with that. But I always remember a quote from the brilliant Radio 1 DJ John Peel who uh, said of Van Morrison, um, the Northern Irish famous soul singer, that he was the only white guy that could shout Lord of Mercy because he was so brilliant because <laughs> he was such a good singer. That has kind of that love of music, the point of music, of being beautiful sounds and beautiful words, seems to be missing in this discussion. Brendan? Yeah, I think it, th- this Canadian controversy just really speaks to the, the, the fragmentary process that's unleashed by identity politics. So it might start off as black versus white or men versus women or gay versus straight or trans versus cis, all of which is bad enough, you know, constantly stirring up these new divisions. But um, it then fragments even more and more so that in the trans movement, there is now, you know, a a, a, a hierarchy of victimhood in the trans movement itself, black trans women, white trans women, and so on and so forth. And also in the cultural appropriation sphere, um, the kind of thing that used to be said about white people who wore their hair in, in you know, um, a black style or who listened to black music or who sang black music is now being said about um, various indigenous groups uh, amongst themselves. It's, it's caused this incredibly bitter divisive dynamic where everyone thinks they have to guard their own culture and not let anyone else interfere with it or be inspired by it or be or to use it or anything else so i think um it's it's very worrying i think it really speaks to the the horrible backward nature of the whole idea of cultural appropriation which is this idea of cultural purity and that every group in society should stick with their own culture not stray into other people's culture not borrow from other people's culture you know there's a real kind of slightly far-right idea going on here this idea of cultural purity this idea of preserving your own culture at the uh, against kind of invaders and other people it's a really nasty ugly idea and it really as ella says it really grates against the whole nature of culture particularly of music which is uh, sharing and mixing and developing and borrowing all those things are central to the way in which music has developed through human history and i think this kind of backward idea of protecting your own culture from everybody else is just going to grate against cultural experimentation and cultural progress for me it's a really disturbing manifestation of the way you know society and particularly how or how identity politics has really re-racialized public life um one example that was uh, of pub cultural appropriation last year was um the singer bruno mars was was called out you know for not actually being black even though he is an ethnic minority and there was an article that went round um in the huffington post that you know try to get to the bottom of what race is Bruno Mars. It detailed his his exact ethnic makeup, saying he's part Ukrainian, part American, part Filipino, part Jewish, and this long list of various, you know, ethnicities. And, and, and you really felt like you were, you know, sort of taking a step backwards, that people would be really, you know, looking into someone's DNA to decide whether, you know, it's appropriate for them to participate in... in um, in in uh, some cultural form in this case just making r&b music yeah it's a it's a very it's a very cruel way as well as looking at artists or singers the people who are out there not to for the most part not to kind of steal off others but actually mm. if a genuine artist who's 
getting involved in fusing different cultures fusing different types of music and coming up with something new I mean that's a brilliant process that should be celebrated not calmed I mean everyone can think of a time when it's irked them I remember going to an open mic night at which a very English guy before me started into a rendition of on Raglan Road oh god it it annoys me I mean not just because he was very English but also because he was terrible at it but it's a different thing when you say that uh, essentially that you know, because I have Irish heritage that I'm only allowed to sing Irish songs or because someone is black, they are only allowed to sing the blues. I mean, Mm. uh, as well as it being restrictive for the artists, it's also incredibly restrictive for listeners because if we only are allowed to engage in cultures that are our own, what a boring life that would be. I think that's right. And if you look at someone like Justin Trudeau, who, 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 when he was um, visiting Indian dignitaries, kind of dressed up in Indian clothes and went on stage and started doing Bangra dancing with all this. I mean, that's slightly weird. And that's a kind of process almost of, you know, blacking up in a sense, because you think that's the only way you could possibly ingratiate yourself with people from other communities. That's dodgy. But when it comes to, you know, the, the honest uh, appreciation of, uh, music and culture and the, and even the borrowing of its styles in order to kind of develop a new approach. You know, for example, you know, the obvious example being Eminem t- taking black rap music and turning it into something new and different and wonderful at various times. Um, all that stuff is, is all to the good. And that's uh, particularly with popular, popular music. That's absolutely central. But the cultural appropriation thing is utterly spinning out of control now. It now covers hair. So anyone who has their hair, any white person who has their hair in cornrows will get into big trouble. It covers food. You know, American universities who students have been protesting because canteens have been selling sushi, you know, covers yoga. Is it really right for white people to be doing yoga? It is becoming ridiculous. But I think even behind the ridiculousness, we can't lose sight of the fact of just how anti-human it is, how Mm. anti-human it is to suggest that we should all stick to our own cultures and not mix with other cultures. That is just anti-humanist and a real problem. You've been listening to the Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com.